you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 26. Read verses 17 through 25. This is the very word of the Lord. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well spring of water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rechaboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. We can turn in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 5. Continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to Matthew chapter 5. Reading verses 17 through 20. This is God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's holy law. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing. And we give you thanks, O Lord, for this gift of your word. And we give you thanks for the gift of the beloved Son who fulfilled the law and the prophets. We pray that even now, Lord, you would instruct us in the Son in whom is all wisdom and understanding. Help us to see his glory as one who taught with authority. Help us to receive 
Father, from his hand as his disciples, that instruction which only he can give. Magnify yourself in the beloved Son, our wisdom, our righteousness, our life, our hope. Attend our hearts by the Spirit whom Christ has poured out, who makes new, who renews, who imparts true understanding, true life. Help us to marvel that these things are from you. Indeed, they must come from you, for no other can accomplish them. And these things are wonderful. We pray in Christ's name, amen. It's terribly exhausting to be misunderstood. Have you ever had this experience? You expend a, an enormous amount of energy uh, trying to explain yourself, trying to explain a, a position or uh, an idea, Let's say the excellencies of Tolstoy, and you feel like nobody gets it. <laughs> Nobody understands. Maybe if I just said it again or differently. (laughs) To be misunderstood is incredibly frustrating. To have your words perverted is incredibly frustrating. To say one thing and then to find out in time that people are saying that you've said the exact opposite of what you set out to say. Such things can be maddening. I think it's difficult to enter into fully this experience of Christ's ministry. How he was constantly misunderstood. The reasons for the misunderstanding are many. It'd be silly to reduce it to just one thing. It was lots of things. But in some ways, the willful misunderstanding of what Christ was saying ultimately resulted in the at least superficial reason why the religious leaders wanted to kill him. He said he's going to destroy the temple. He didn't say that. Not strictly speaking, certainly not what he meant anyway. He was predicting the very thing that was going to take place, namely the death that they were facilitating. I'm rather sympathetic with people that misunderstand him, especially in the light of this text, because this is a difficult text. There's all sorts of difficulties to this. I've found myself, even as a member of the new covenant, (laughs) as one who has been given the Lord's spirit, wondering what on earth is he saying here? Mm. Now, gratefully, I think the main thrust of what he's saying is plain, even though some of the details I think are hard and maybe even a little obscure. But Jesus here is intentionally setting out to correct a possible misunderstanding. That's how he starts. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. With the plain implication is that you're going to be tempted to misunderstand me in this way. (laughs) You're going to hear the things that I say about the Sabbath. About the dietary law about what it means to truly love God in yielding mercy and not sacrifice. And you're going to think, he's doing something completely new. Moses never talked about this. Isaiah never talked about this. Jesus says, 
be on guard against this potential misunderstanding. That I'm setting all that aside, that I'm disregarding all of that. I assure you I'm not. I'm bringing it to full flowering. I'm bringing it to full realization. So let's enter into this attempt to correct a potential misunderstanding. First, I want us to consider what's plain. Namely, that Christ has come on purpose. Christ has come on purpose. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Again, there's lots of difficulties in these four verses, but don't miss this very plain statement. Jesus has come on purpose. He's come to do something. He's come to accomplish something. He says, I've come for a very specific reason. And here it's stated as to fulfill the law and the prophets. He says it twice, really. Not to abolish, which means to destroy, to dismantle. Think of the dismantling of an institution. I'm going to tear this place down brick by brick. I have not come to dismantle. I've come to fulfill. So he insists upon it twice. And before we go on to ask, what does it mean to fulfill the law and the prophets? Let's just marvel that he's come on purpose. That he's come to accomplish something. He's come to do something. He states this in a number of ways throughout Matthew's gospel. I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. They're all marvelous angles on this one undisputable fact that the Son has come to carry out a mission. To do something distinct in time and space. He didn't come randomly. He didn't come vaguely. He didn't come thinking, well, I'll make it up as I go along. He came to accomplish something. In the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son for a very specific purpose. John 17, 4, Jesus prays, Father, I have glorified you on earth and have finished the work that you gave me to accomplish. We know what it means to set out to accomplish something, I trust. A few weeks ago, Maisie and I set out to accomplish a series of books, The Dragons of Blue Land. We finished the last one yesterday evening. Mission accomplished. Gold star on our wall. (laughs) Some of you are working on house projects. Some of you are working towards fitness goals. Some of you are finishing up degrees. You set out on an endeavor with resolve in your heart and a goal in mind. The eternal son did the same thing. He set out with resolve in his heart and a goal in mind, as it were. And that goal was nothing less than the making known of who God is in the salvation of sinners. 
That's very comforting. Because it means that my salvation, your salvation, at the end of the day, does not depend on something you do. It rests on whether or not the son was successful in his mission. And he was. Because he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God. Well, no wonder Scripture speaks of salvation making known the glories of God. Not only in the grace and the mercy that's made known in the Lord Jesus Christ, but bringing a will effectually to pass in a world that is marred by futility. The thwarting of all sorts of good intentions and wills. God's glory, God's manifold glory and salvation on display in the Son is that he actually saves sinners and that your salvation rests in his hands, not your own. Be encouraged by that. Second, our Lord has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Here he states his specific purpose to fulfill the law and the prophets. And this is difficult. What are the law and the prophets? Got to figure out what that means first, and then we can figure out what it means to fulfill them. What are the law and the prophets? Some say it's just the entirety of the Old Testament. J.C. Ryle takes this position. A number of people take this position. J.C. I love J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle takes this position. He says the law and the prophets are essentially everything God has revealed in the Old Testament. All of the promises, all of the institutions, all of the laws, everything that was set forth of old, Jesus says, I have come to fulfill. This is the heart of the letter to the Hebrews, isn't it? See, like, you remember Moses? Jesus, let's start before that. Do you remember angels? <laughs> Do you remember Moses? The temple, the sacrifices, do you remember all of that? What you want to go back to, you can't go back to it. Why? Because it pointed forward to him. He's the realization of all of it. You can't go back to that because the realization has come. The fullness has come. The thing to which they point has come. We talk about this in terms of a shadow and substance. This is Paul's language in Colossians. Not change Maisie's diaper in the way that, not Maisie's, Maisie's like five now. Which daughter do I have a daughter whose diapers I change? Olivia. <laughs> Olivia's diapers. And the way the lights are in the nursery, I change the diapers and the lights are behind me. And there's this massive shadow cast on the wall. And for a while, she was like very concerned. <laughs> she was... That thing looks large and not like you. (laughs) But the reality was I was casting that shadow and she was looking at the shadow and not the substance. And had she seen the substance, her heart would have been put at ease, or at least I hope. (laughs) Because the substance was one of love and care and tenderness, even though the shadow had some pretty terrifying dimensions to it, if I'm quite honest. (laughs) Paul says that this is rather the relationship between the old and the new. All of these things, the, the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, the service in the temple, all of it was a shadow. But Christ is the substance. He's the body behind whom light was shining. 
such that this was his shadow. Mm. But now he's here. <laughs> you don't want the shadow. You want the substance. It's quite possible that this is what's going on there. But I think there's a more specific sense in which Jesus uses law and prophets here. Namely, the law and the prophets are shorthand for what God requires from man. The law and the prophets are shorthand for what God requires from man. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 12, so he uses his phrase, law and the prophets, in the same sermon, chapter 7. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So he's saying, okay, well, what's, what's God calling you to do? What does he require from you? He requires you to treat others how you want them to treat you. That's what he requires of you. Similarly, in Matthew 22, Jesus answers the question, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. The second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he closes, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he's saying God's servants from long ago are prosecuting God's demands upon man. What do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor and yourself. That's what all the law and the prophets are saying. So Jesus here is saying, I've come to fulfill what God requires from man. How does he do that? What does it mean to fulfill what God requires from man? Well, first, in the most basic and fundamental way, he does this by his perfect life of love. <laughs> that he loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, his soul, and strength. Every moment, every breath, every thought, every action yielded in perfect love. And not just that. He loved his neighbor as himself. He loved his enemies as they crucified him. What wondrous love. <laughs> His is the perfect realization of what the law requires. A life of love yielded unto God. A life of love yielded unto neighbors. And not just that, but it's also what the law required in terms of its punishment. For the law required that punishment be executed upon all those who violate it. And Jesus yielded that in the stead of those who violate it. Everything the law demanded, Jesus yielded in himself. In what we call both his active and his passive obedience. In the book of Revelation, there's this very dramatic scene where John looks out over the course of all of human history, every single human being who's ever lived, and he says, no one is worthy. None of us are worthy. All of us have fallen woefully short of the law and the prophets. Such an unobjectionable call, love the Lord your God. Such an unobjectionable call, love your neighbor as yourself. Is there anyone, anyone? John says there's no one? Not even me? No wonder he weeps like the world is ending. That's the tragedy of tragedies. 
until a servant comes and places his hand on his shoulder, says, weep no more. There is one worthy. It's the lamb standing as though slain. The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. He fulfills the law and the prophets. But Calvin doesn't see that as the primary sense here, and I think Calvin's right. It's not just that the Lord yields a life in obedience to the loveliness of what God's law calls for. Rather, Calvin says, when he says, I came to fulfill the law, he actually fulfilled it by quickening with his spirit the dead letter. Meaning it's not just that Jesus himself fulfills the law. It's that as the Messiah, as the king, he leads a new people in actually obeying the law from the heart. You can think of the law as this beautiful vision of humanity. This beautiful vision of what human beings were supposed to be. Think of any portrait and you think, that's lovely, that's beautiful. Oh, that that law would be fulfilled in a humanity that looks like that. You look at the picture and then you look at humanity, you're like, it has not been fulfilled. You look at the members of every other kingdom, it has not been fulfilled. The citizens of every other kingdom Characterize them as you like. They cannot be characterized as those who love God and love neighbor. There is one kingdom that can legitimately be characterized as that. This is how the world will know you are my disciples. By your love for one another. We just read in Romans 13, the law is fulfilled in Love. The Messiah fulfills the law, not just in being that exact image of the loveliness that the law requires, but in actually leading a people in true righteousness. Now in part, but one day in full and in all of its perfection of details. What other king can do that? Name me another king who has the power not just to yield himself in obedience, but to actually lead others in true love. Name me one other king. I'll wait. I won't wait that long. (laughs) No other king. No other kingdom. Jesus come to fulfill the law and the prophets. In bringing forth a new creation. Him the first fruits, we that follows. Paul says essentially the same thing. Do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the very thing that God promised to do in the fullness of time with the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant I will make with them. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. 
The kings of Israel, sad states, sad stories, all of them. How many of them the refrain was, and they led God's people into sin. And they led God's people into sin. Jeroboam, they led God's people into false worship. Ahaz, they led God's people into false treaties. Manasseh, they led God's people into gross iniquity. Jesus, and he leads God's people in paths of righteousness for his namesake. A king like no other. A power like no other. A glory like no other. Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So we celebrate at the table. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood. We mark the profound gift of forgiveness. We mark the profound gift of reconciliation such that we sit down at table with God and we mark the profound gift that has dawned, namely new life in our hearts, a life of love sustained in the vine by the life of the Son. And we yearn for the day when that love is all in all for faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is love. All of that happens at the table. Man, our worship is wonderful and mysterious, which is what I'm going to preach on this afternoon, so be sure to come back. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophet in yielding himself as the perfect vision of righteousness and actually leading others in that same path. That is a king like no other. There's encouragement in that because I think we can think about our obedience unto Christ as our contribution to things. That goes back to that foolishness that we talked about last week, that good works somehow factor into our justification, that good works somehow earn our place with God. No, no, no. Good works are your participation in the new creation. It's not your contribution. It's not Christ gets you started in faith and then you finish the house by works. That's partly the error of the Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul says you don't start with faith and finish with works. Now there's tension here because Christ is simultaneously saying, this is something I do in you and this is something I'm calling you to pursue. Don't synthesize that tension. This is something I do in you, and this is something I'm calling you to pursue. Paul tells us to Timothy explicitly, pursue righteousness, O man of God. Flee sin, O man of God. And yet at the same time, dispel all notions that your obedience is something you muster up. And that's encouraging because obedience is hard. Have you ever tried to love a difficult person? Go ahead, try to hide in a closet and muster that up in your heart. You ever tried to forgive someone who's actually wronged you? I'm not talking about like trampled on your toe incidentally. I mean like wronged you. And God calls you to forgive them. Do you ever try to do that on your own? You're not doing this on your own. <laughs> this is nothing you're going to white knuckle. <laughs> There's encouragement to know that Christ's power, Christ's ministry, Christ's promise is that he's doing this in us. So seek it from him. You got someone difficult to love? Go to Christ. 
You got someone difficult to forgive? Go to Christ. Don't muster it in and of yourself. You got a trial? You're enduring? Go to Christ. It's his power that he delights to make known in our weakness. And this is what he came to do. Don't miss that glorious dimension. We can point out also that our Lord did not come to generate lawlessness. Now, naturally, this follows, right? And Jesus actually makes this extension. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, another difficult verse. The general principle is plain. The disciple of Christ does not casually despise or discard God's word and God's commandments. So again, he's dealing here with all sorts of misunderstandings. He's in many ways going to set aside circumcision. In many ways, he's going to set aside temple worship. He's going to set aside dietary laws. All these things are going to be set aside, but they're not really set aside. To set aside means to discard, right? They're not set aside. They're brought to completion in the Lord Jesus Christ, such that the truth that those things were teaching is made manifest and realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. But people were starting to get a sense of that's, that's what he's doing, and they were getting all bent out of shape. He's like, well, then you don't care about God's commands. You plainly don't care about God's commands. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I care more than you'll ever care. <laughs> I wrote them. <laughs> the attitude of a true disciple is not casual disregard for anything God says. The attitude of a disciple is cherishing. Everything that comes from God's mouth. Our relationship to the law has changed dramatically. That's plain in scripture. It's absolutely plain in scripture. Paul likens it to dying. <laughs> you're dead. You had one marriage. You're dead. Now you've got a new marriage. <laughs> it's a completely different arrangement. We're no longer under the law as a covenant of works. To use the language of Westminster Confession 19. The law is no longer that which saves or condemns. And it'd be tempting to hear those things and say, well, then the law is useless. I hate the law. Jesus is saying, no, 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 I've come to write the law on your heart by fulfilling the law for you. And by opening your eyes to the loveliness of the law that you could not see because the law was consistently pointing out your failures. That's gone now. So now you are freed to see the loveliness of the law. Now you can take up that song of the psalmist. Oh, how I love thy law. Why? Because it's no longer a ministry of death. It no longer condemns. But rather in it, we see the loveliness of our father, the loveliness of the image into which he is conforming us, transforming us in the beloved son. To think that any portion of God's word, all of which points to Christ, 
can be treated with contempt. Jesus says it's foolishness. It's utter foolishness. If you receive a letter from someone you hold to be an enemy, you're going to read that letter in a certain way. I suspect you're going to be tempted by your worst parts not to render anything that's said charitably. (laughs) Have you ever done this? No, you guys haven't done this. I'm the only one who's done this. You have an enemy and they say something and you're like, it probably meant the worst possible conceivable interpretation of what they meant. Why? Because they're less than human. (laughs) You read a letter from someone whom you think to be an enemy, you're going to read it a certain way. If you read a letter from your father who has loved you with a love supreme, who has given the most precious one in the universe to make you his own, who has graciously granted you the inheritance of eternal life, you're going to read that letter differently. (laughs) You're going to cherish it. You're not going to despise it in any of its parts. That's what Christ is teaching at a general level, our attitude towards all of God's word, including and even especially his law, is now characterized by our relationship to him as his children in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what are these least commandments and least in the kingdom? I almost... Just wanted to blow right by it because hard things are hard to treat from the pulpit. (laughs) Let's just make a couple observations. Notice that it's the same word. Whoever loosens the least of these commandments will be least in the kingdom. So the least, least. So we're in territory that's well known in the gospels. Namely, with the measure you measure, it will be measured unto you. Or that prophet. Right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Notice that it's also not denying the categories of lesser or greater. Jesus is going to say later to the Pharisees, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the, the weightier things of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. So he's engaging in a legitimate differentiation there. So he's not dismissing the possibilities of that differentiation. What he's condemning is the one who seizes upon that differentiation as an occasion to dismiss, as an occasion to trivialize. Does that make sense? So it seems to mean the one who disregards God's word or trivializes God's word will be disregarded and trivialized in the kingdom. Now, some see that this text actually teaches a differentiation of status in the realized kingdom. Scripture teaches things that are along those lines. They're kind of strange to us, right? To the one uh, who is faithful and little, much will be given. Or you think of the parable of the talents, The one who's faithful with five, what are the numbers? Five and three, 10 and five. 
Nobody's gonna cross-check me on that one. The one who's faithful in 10, he gets 10. The one who's faithful in five gets five. There's a differentiation that's correlated with the faithfulness. But it's mysterious. To create a whole system of sort of a hierarchy in heaven, I think goes beyond the bounds of scripture. So I think it's better here to see the kingdom of heaven as the church. This is the visible community of Christ where he's defining what it looks like to act honorably. He's saying the one who trivializes my word is going to be seen as trivial in this kingdom, the church. So he's establishing the life of the disciples here, not as those who cast aside in contempt, but as those who cherish. And this being what distinguishes the life of the community following Christ. There's one thing I want to latch onto here that the commentaries didn't really latch onto, and Jesus defines greatness here. That seems like a very modern definition. We all want to be great. There's all sorts of definitions for greatness. We would not define greatness in this way. How do we define greatness? Leaving our mark. Being an influencer. Right? Rising. What does Jesus say greatness is? Here's true greatness. The one who sits at my feet. (laughs) The one who is influenced by me. The one who doesn't rise but sits. This is greatness. The church is an upside-down world. Upside down. But everywhere around us is testimony that the world needs to be turned upside down. Because the world is the one that is upside down. So the church is right side up. Did you follow that? (laughs) It feels upside down because we're in the flesh. But Jesus says, you've been living in the upside down place. You're finally right side up. This is what greatness looks like. Last, our Lord did not come to generate self-righteousness. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That packs a sting. I think it has kind of a shock value to it. I mean, the popular conception of the scribes and Pharisees, they were the ones who were most scrupulous about keeping God's law. They were the one who devoted their whole life to this thing. You think of a carpenter, be like, well, I'm never going to, like, they think about that a lot. And I think about hammering this nail into this board way more than they think about righteousness. So in some sense, this is supposed to have shock value. They're like, there's no way to surpass that standard. But Jesus isn't saying you need to have more righteousness than they have. He's really saying you need righteousness of a different quality altogether. Mm. So there is a sense in which we can hear him basically using this as the law to say, you can't obtain righteousness by yourself. Despair of that effort and flee to Christ. There is a sense in which I think that's valid. But that's not the only sense going on here. He's saying the righteousness that I have come to work in you, 
the true righteousness in which you truly participate by virtue of being in me is of a different ilk, quality, and kind than the righteousness that you know on display in the scribes and the Pharisees. So in what sense is it different? In what sense does Christian righteousness surpass this popular notion of righteousness? First, it's from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a righteousness that he supplies. When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not only declared righteous by an imputation of his perfect righteousness, we're also made righteous in our sanctification. Our qualm with the Roman Catholics is not that Christians are made righteous. Our qualm with the Roman Catholics is we don't talk about that under the head of justification. You can't collapse justification into sanctification. Not only does Paul not teach that, you're setting everyone up to fail. But our qualm in the final analysis isn't that Christians are actually made righteous. It's just the way that it happens, the way that we speak about it, is under the heading of sanctification. A gift that Christ gives as we look to him in faith. Second, this righteousness is from the heart. It's righteousness from the heart. It's not superficial righteousness. It wells up from the very core of your being. Make the tree good and the fruit will be good. Oh, to be a good tree. (laughs) He makes good trees. That's a song. The hillbilly Thomists. If you got time, uh, it's kind of catchy. A bunch of Dominican friars were like top of the folk music chart for a while. I made me miss my Dominican friends from CUA. <laughs> to be a good tree. That's right. To be a good tree. That's what he's talking about here. He makes good trees. Why? Because he plants us in himself. Again, we're not talking about justification here. We're talking about participation in new creation. This isn't rule-keeping. In fact, the Pharisees' rule-keeping demonstrated that they hated people. (laughs) So Jesus tells them, right? He asks them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? They're like, no. He's like, why do you hate everyone? (laughs) I mean, in a sense, that's what he says. He says even their rule-keeping was an occasion for their hatred. If you hate people, John tells us, you hate God. <laughs> you can't hate the image of God and say that you love God. It's just, you just can't do it. You're being inconsistent. So he says, Christian righteousness surpasses this righteousness because it's from the heart. Something happens to us at the very core of our persons as God takes a hold of us. It affects change at a fundamental level. Scripture calls it the new birth. Jesus uses very similar language as he uses here when he talks to Nicodemus. He says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. The righteousness surpasses because it wells up from a tree made good in the new creation that is dawned by the efficacious word of God in the gospel planting us in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? 
Second, it's demonstrated in actions, first and foremost. What I mean by this is that it's an exact opposite to the condemnation he pronounces on the Pharisees in Matthew 23.3. Woe to you because you preach and do not practice. Notice he says in 19, he says, whoever does them and teaches others to do them. He says the doing of them, Calvin went so far as you should primarily be doing them and not teaching them. Laity, that's what he says. He like, talks to the church, he says very directly, he says primarily your manner of life should be the way you do this. In other words, true righteousness is interested more in quiet doing and less in loud prescribing. That's catchy. And it's true. True righteousness is more interested in quiet doing than it is in loud prescribing. Now, in this way, Jesus demonstrates his unrivaled superiority. Because there's always going to be something of a gap between what we preach and how we live. Now, we're to be mindful of that gap. We're to be slow to call other people to do things that we don't lift a finger to do. Very slow. So slow as to maybe not even be moving in that direction. We're to be very slow in that. But the Lord Jesus Christ only ever calls his disciples to do lesser versions of what he does. (laughs) He calls them to give up earthly wealth. He gave up heavenly riches as he set aside that glory he enjoyed with the Father. If he calls them to endure the insults of family, he does so as the divine wisdom who bore his family calling him a fool. If he calls them to die, he did so as one who died with God's wrath poured upon him so that all of his saints could die fully assured of the Father's love. Make no mistake, if he calls you to anything, he had to do it worse and do it more. And in this sense, he only ever practices what he preaches as his followers we ought to be more concerned with our actions than prescribing the actions of others for this is true righteousness and that's what we see on display perfectly without any confusion in the lord jesus christ are these things difficult yeah yeah they're difficult are they true yes and amen May his kingdom continue to advance, not only bringing sinners in, but strengthening his reign of grace in our hearts until the day he returns and ushers us into full possession of the glory he has won for us. Let's pray. Sanctify us, O Lord, by your word. Your word is truth. Magnify your son as the righteous one. Give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness that can only be satisfied in him. Lead us, O Lord, in the path of true righteousness for your name's sake. Teach us to crave our heavenly inheritance, which will be ours. All in all, on the day of Christ's return, 
We ask in his name. Amen.